Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled to be welcoming back the wonderful Anson Boone to talk all about his latest FX series, Pistol. And the first thing I want to talk about was your audition process, because when you first went and auditioned for this, it was an untitled Danny Boyle project. And then there was the point where you were auditioning for a general pistol, and then it kind of got down to the that now it's going to be Johnny and you know which character it is. And I was really fascinated by that because that's obviously very different styles of kind of going into an audition, depending on how much information you know. You know, if you're potentially playing any of the pistols, there's a plethora of personalities that you can dive into. And when you didn't even know what the project is, a lot more interpretation that you could take. And so how did you approach each of those stages differently based on the information that you had to hand? Well, it's funny because I, I guess I would have done my audition very shortly after you and I last spoke. So when I was talking of uh, promoting my movie Blackbird and someone asked me at the time, is there a director you would really love to work with? And I had just seen Trainspotting for the first time, probably in about five years. And I said, Danny Boyle. And then and that, that was who I really wanted to work with at the time. And then two weeks later, I get through this email saying, untitled Danny Boyle project, confidentially, we know it's about the Sex Pistols. We don't know any more than that here are five scenes and a monologue everyone has to read the monologue and then you get to pick two scenes of the five of your choice and I thought that was interesting because it's funny as an actor you kind of have in your head a lot of the time types of characters you would like to play because maybe they're different to the last ones you've done and this approach to me when I realized I had to pick two out of the five the two ones that I'm perhaps most resonated with it's like oh they're kind of judging you off something that you naturally would lean towards and it, it, as an actor, you kind of you want to decide what you're going to play in a weird way. So I kind of had to succumb to the ones that I'm most connected with, which made sense in the end. And I think when you look at the overall casting, it, probably, it was probably a genius idea on Danny's part to do that. So I, I picked these two scenes and I, I genuinely went for them because one was funny and one was sad. That's the way I saw it. And I thought it would just be fun to explore two different ranges of emotion. And so I kind of tried to form the concept of a general sex pistol in my head, which is probably the worst stereotype that now I've spent a year and a half learning about them. I would just slam anyone that did it like that. But that's that's how I first dove into it. Um, and I, re I truly didn't know too much about them. I knew of Johnny Rotten's orange spiky hair, like the kind of iconic imagery around that. And I knew Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen. So I, I think I watched a couple of music videos and maybe one of the most famous interviews of the band talking. And I went into it with a working class Cockney accent and trying to be quite controversial and quite um, aggressive. That's how I went into it when I did my first two auditions. And then the monologue was talking about fame and the monologue was talking about um, your experience with fame. And I just, I kind of took it on with, like kind of an attitude as I was reading it and then when they came back and they said we'd now like you to read for John Lydon I didn't really I didn't really know what that was and I said to my dad oh they've asked me to read for John Lydon he goes that's Johnny Rotten and I said no way and I hadn't put the two together I just knew it was Johnny Rotten I didn't know it was John Lydon he said that's the, the lead singer and I thought but I don't look anything like him and my dad said you could look like him you know if, if you if you worked at it and immediately I was away with it because I love the idea of trying to turn yourself into something that you aren't obviously like. That was fascinating to me. So they sent me two scenes. One of them was John and Sid, when they named Sid, Sid Vicious. And one of them was John's audition to be in the Sex Pistols, which we then we do in episode two. And it's so funny because there was a lot of 
similarities going on there with me in real life and John in the scene. It's kind of like a fight or flight moment. It's now or never. He has to absolutely commit to try and convince Malcolm McLaren and Steve Jones and Paul Cook to take him into this band because it's all he wants. And I absolutely wanted to work with Danny Boyle. I absolutely wanted to take on the challenge of playing Johnny Rotten. And I was fascinated that I'd had to read this kind of general pistol and they'd now decided that this would be the character I should most lend myself to. So I just went for it. And I had to sing, as per the stage directions, Alice Cooper's I'm 18 into a, um, a, sh- a broken shower head is in the script, but we didn't have one of those. So I did it into a toilet brush. And I asked my dad to play in the background, Alice Cooper's 18. And I showed my parents the tape afterwards and they said, are you sure you haven't gone too far with this? Because I was kind of in the very early stages of what became the contorting and the squirmy that he goes on to do. And they said, are you sure you can do this? And I thought, it's Johnny Rotten. And I, I, I really have a feeling about this. This is a challenge that I really want to explore. So I'm just going to send it. And they're either going to say, oh, my God, never send that to Danny Boyle, because that, that's just that's crazy what he's done. Or they're going to say, well, he really committed. There's something interesting there. I hoped it was the latter. And it, and it was the latter, luckily. You know, and, and with what you were saying there as well about even just in your audition, kind of figuring out what that line is of how far can I push it, you know, feeling like you really needed to take it to the extreme that so naturally fits into the show as well because the show feels very heightened but that's because what was happening was very heightened the music's very heightened the performances are um and so people it is i was just blown away i remember when i first read episode one and i started it and it was i think it was 62 pages long which normally would take you maybe an hour and a bit or something but i felt like i read it in five minutes all of a sudden i was on page one and then i was on page 60 because it ha- it's this crazy heightened world of this band that you can't believe actually existed, but it really did happen in two and a half years. And it, it's just this wacky, wild story. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's important to present it with an added element of drama and colour. Yeah. Did it help you when you were developing him as a character before shooting and just kind of knowing, well, if they're responding to this in my, audi- my audition tape, then I know that that's where we're going to take this in terms of how we're telling the story and how we're p- p- portraying this character? I guess so. Yeah, uh, because I I always um, spent leading up to the shoot, I'd kind of made my mind up and come to peace with this as I as I went into the shoot. But leading up to it, I was really um, focused on how you balance on that tightrope of being an impression artist and then being an actor reading a piece of fiction that someone's written, you know. So obviously this is a true story, but I'm hired to read a piece of drama that someone's written, even though it's based on real events, it's not a documentary. So that was a, it's a hard tightrope to walk, but it was important for me the whole way through to just do justice for this man that I've come to admire so much. And for this band, you know, like you can probably tell I'm so, I'm such a fan of this band now. I'm so enthusiastic about them. So I just really wanted to get it right. And then at some point you have to accept, well, I, I can't do this exactly perfect to what it was in real life because I'm not that person which is kind of hard to hard to accept sometimes when you're such a fan of the person you're playing, but you do have to accept it. And, and you and Danny kind of decided that the starting point was going to be the scripts and, and working mm. on that and then reading Steve Jones's memoir, which the series mm. is based on, before going into John Lydon's own writing and, and his memoirs and, and books. And how did that kind of help you sequentially to be like, okay, this is the story, the way that we're telling it. This is the source material for it. And then kind of going even further into all of John's perspectives on a lot of that stuff at the time. Yeah, well, you put it perfectly because the script is based on Steve Jones's book at at its core. And 
the your eyes into this story are Steve Jones's eyes. But obviously, John Lydon is a, was a massive part of Steve Jones's world and continues to be, but was at the time very intensely. So obviously, I started with the scripts because that's where you have to start as an actor. And then I thought, well, it's important to read what the script is based on because that's our eyes into this story. But then it was important for me to understand my character's version of events too and then explore the balance of that. The thing is about the Sex Pistols, which they admit themselves, is everyone has a completely different version of events. And that's quite a common theme that you you, uh, come across a lot when you're doing a punk story. And there's that age-old punk saying that if you were really there, you can't remember anything because there was so many drugs and alcohol. It's true. That's what they all say. It's impossible to be. And to be honest, I can't remember what I did yesterday. I can't imagine how they must be able to remember exactly what went on 45, 50 years ago. So it was quite interesting to get to, and they're they're not too dissimilar, by the way, Steve and John's accounts of things, but obviously certain things are more important to different people, like the music or the social aspect. They remember things differently. And then after I'd read John's books, I'm lucky that John's got three books. So there was really a lot to read. And he is so generous, particularly in his th- first book. His self-reflection is quite amazing. And the, and the running commentary he has of what went on is, was just so helpful. It felt at times like I was really speaking to him. And then after that, I, I read parts of Jordan Mooney's book, who Maisie, William plays, Maisie Williams plays, um, Vivian's documentary, Vivian Westwood's documentary, a bit of Malcolm McLaren's book, a bit of Glenn Matlock's book, a bit of Chrissy Hines' book. And then all of a sudden, you kind of form this general painting in your head of how things went, went around. You know, and you also kind of been going through things that that John has written or or said in interviews, kind of picked out details of like, okay, this is the kind of food that he likes to eat. This is his favorite beer, and inhabited him in in that regard a lot as well. How does doing things like that in the lead up to shooting and and during filming really just help you get into a different space of the mindset of a character, particularly with this? So it's such a different mindset to mine in real life. So again, the last time I talked to you, we were talking about a movie called Blackbird, where I was playing a teenage boy that wanted to be an actor, right? And this teenage boy didn't come from a family of actors. So that's kind of me in real life. There were obviously differences. It's not, it's not me who I was playing. We had different likes and dislikes, but it was kind of easier to sidestep into that character. You could kind of switch in and out of it a lot easier. I couldn't do that with this, truly. No, no matter how hard I tried to kind of let go at lunchtime during a shooting day, I couldn't really because he has such a unique mindset. He's such a contrarian, which is what makes him so special. And he's so intelligent. He's whip smart. He never, ever stutters. Like this is something I noticed um, very early on about John is that he never says um or ah uh, or like. He knows exactly what he's going to say when he's going to say it. And so to, com- to, to uh, maintain kind of, my immersion in it I just really had to have all of these details down so like John is left-handed so I made sure that I always smoked and and wrote left-handed he's always writing because he was always writing the lyrics and doing that kind of thing those little details just allowed me to remain in a place like him and like you say the the drinking his uh brand of beer and eating his food and making sure the props in his bedroom although they were important things for the story they were also my little tidbits that I've left for him because he wasn't involved in the series and I really want him to see how much I admire him and just how much research I did to try and do him justice so those are my little special Anson treats for him when he watches it 
And in starting to talk about the musical aspect of the show, because obviously that was incredibly intense. That was two or three months of essentially band camp with all of you. Um, I first wanted to ask about working with Underworld because they were also coming and helping you guys in, in figuring out a lot of the music elements. And I love the fact that you've described how they kind of really create music and think about music in a very similar way that, that John does in, in a lot of regards. And so what were those ways and how did working with them specifically as musicians and kind of mentors through the series really help you to get into the mindset of, of John as a musician and, and how he sees the world in that regard? What was great um, in the first instance was what they was that they've worked with Danny so many times. So they've been working with Danny since Shallow Grave and Train Spotting. So there was kind of a familiarity there that made us feel very comfortable. And we we had three weeks leading up to Christmas 2020. So December so December 2020, where we just did music. Then we had two months after Christmas before the shoot where we did acting and music. So we didn't see Danny all too much during that first three weeks. It was mainly just us and Underworld. And they were with us every day. And I like to describe it as, I don't know if you touched on this, it was a bit like a punk secondary school or a punk high school because we were doing classes. So we'd come in at 8 a.m. and we'd have two hours of private tuition where I'd do singing. Then we'd have a break. Then we'd come together for two hours where we do band practice together. Then we'd have lunch. And then afterwards we do kind of uh, some kind of improvisation class. Um, and the thing is about Underworld, which I came to realize was so helpful to me in learning to be like John, was that um, what you touched upon, that Rick, who does the music of Underworld, Carl is the singer, Rick does the music. He's so experimental. What he does is he takes normal everyday sounds. So say you can hear a bird singing outside, he'll record it and then he'll turn it into this incredible techno track. And it's almost unrecognizable that it's a bird anymore. But then when he points out it's a bird, you're like, oh, of course it is. But he's manipulated the sound to be something completely that you, that you wouldn't expect, which is kind of what John Lydon likes to do, particularly what he went on to do in Public Image Limited. He's such an incredible manipulator of sound. And then Carl, what I found fascinating about Carl, the singer, is he writes all of his lyrics based on his surroundings. So I'll give you an example. He was um, doing a, ch a charity event in Wigan a couple of months after we finished Pistol, and he sat in a cafe and he wrote a whole song for Underworld about the fried breakfast that he ate in this cafe. And that also is the kind of thing John Lydon did. John realized very early on, you know, he hadn't had any formal musical training, which was another similarity we had because I haven't been to drama school. So I love that. He didn't have any formal training and he came from a very working class, underprivileged background. And he realized all he had to write about were his surroundings and his frustrations or his interests. And so to kind of get that from Rick and Carl very early on was so helpful in working out why John would write the lyrics he wrote or why he felt passionate about certain lyrics he wrote. And you also had to, to essentially recalibrate your singing voice as well, because John uses quite a lot of higher notes in the register. Um, and so you, I know that you were working with, with a music coach in order to kind of pull those notes into your range. What did a lot of that specific training look like? And, and how did you kind of like reach the point of, of finding those specific notes so that you could capture it on screen? Because you, you were performing live on screen as well. This wasn't pre-recording a track that was then mastered and then played to you when you were on set. Exactly. And that's the most special part about this job for me is that we, we became a band and we, and you know, everything you see on camera or everything you can hear more like when you're watching the series is exactly what you can see us playing right there. There's no kind of overdubbing of tracks and there was no mimings or separate recordings. I'm so lucky. We're all so lucky we had that three months where we got to really become a band. So John sings two octaves higher than how I would naturally sing. And he kind of speaks an octave higher. 
And what I found fascinating so early on is that the voice is just a muscle, just like you might build your arm muscles or just I like to think of it how like a dancer or a gymnast might learn to stretch themselves to do the splits. I had to learn my voice to stop talking like this so that it could talk much higher up. And on our first day, Anne-Marie Speed, my vocal coach, who is a true genius, asked me to see Anarchy in the UK. She said, just give it a go. And I just couldn't do it. And I kept saying, what's going on? Why doesn't it sound like him? I was so frustrated. And she said, you're singing it two octaves too low. And I said, well, I'm never going to be able to go all the way up there. It hurts so much. And it was incredible. We had kind of this really scientific approach to it. And then not. We had this, she taught me about the sciences of voice and the, and the, um, the, the way it is in the body and how you can use your body to help it, like your diaphragm and stuff. And then she was like, okay, now just be a sex pistol. Now just forget all of that. Let it, let, you know, trust that it's in your head, all of this knowledge, and now just be a sex pistol and shout. And we created this amazing technique that we used for the whole thing because I couldn't have done 15 takes of the gigs unfortunately as much as I would have loved to have done because I wouldn't have been able to act the next day because John who actually had a lot of health problems he you know Jordan used to talk to us about John coughing up blood after gigs and stuff like that because it was so intense what he was doing I couldn't do that there's a certain there's a certain place where you have to stop for trying to be a method actor I wasn't going to start coughing up blood or not being able to come to work the next day so Danny was amazing he tried to always limit it to three takes when we did a gig but obviously things go wrong in a film set you can't always do it in three takes so we kind of really teetered on the edge of being a bit dangerous, like a sex pistol, but also having this incredible technique that I got to learn from her as though I went to drama school for three months um, that I could rely on to know that I wasn't going to damage my voice for the rest of the shoot. And with, with that advice that she was giving you of like, you know, really take it on, do the training and then let it go and just be a pistol. Is that kind of how all of your research and preparation came to pass once you started filming where it was like, now's the moment where I'm just inhabiting it and I'm not thinking about it in the same intellectual way where I've been studying every single detail for months on end. Yeah, there is. And that is normally the way that I do it, I guess. Um, I, I, you know, I like to do a lot of preparation and a lot of research because I just find it interesting. And I think it makes me feel more confident to experiment on the day as the camera turns over. But on this, we shot so out of sequence. And particularly during COVID, everything was slightly more difficult with getting the shooting day done, of course, naturally. And so the, the most difficult challenge in playing John Lydon is the journey that he goes on. And it's what I found the most fascinating. You meet him at the end of episode one or at the start of episode two as someone who has never sung before, never done any public speaking, never been in a large group of friends, never really gone out of London. You know, he's been to Ireland a few times with his family. And then you leave him at the end of episode six as this well-traveled, incredibly inspired, creative, hyper-intelligent sort of singing sensation and to explore that across two and a half years or five and a half hours in our tv show it's a lot and when you're shooting out of order you know i remember one week we were in peckham liberal club shooting six different gigs throughout the series that you know went across all of the episodes so all different levels of his ability in singing and i had to map that out very clearly and i had to stick to that quite a lot because I, 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 in order to do him the justice that I wanted to do and in order to do the band their justice, because it is so impressive that they did everything without any formal musical training. I had to know what I need to learn during this gig. So in this gig, okay, I'm really angry at what's going on in the audience. So I'm going to learn about that growl that John Lydon went to have in Nevermind the Bollocks when he sung. Or, you know, in this gig, I've been singing for like, two years now or five episodes now I'm really confident I've got a lot of fans I can afford to relax the ground a little bit and go into 
my own unique singing voice that I found, like he particularly went on to do in Public Image Limited. And I had to really map that out. And I've never done anything like this, but I had to create this chart of like, these are the features that John Lydon has in Nevermind the Bollocks. These are what he had at the start. And these are what he had when he went into Pill. And these are the gigs that I'm going to use these different techniques in. It was very scientific. But as you say, when the camera rolls, you can't be focusing on that kind of thing. You really have to go with it. And it would have been impossible for me to try and bear all of this in mind during the take because it was such a chaotic shoot. I couldn't even see a camera half the time, particularly during the gigs. We really had live audiences. And when you're playing music and you've got your bandmates around you and Sid Vicious is getting a can chucked in his face and some of the blood pours on your face and then Steve Jones is getting spat out and part of it hits you in the eye. It's like, there's no way you can remember, oh, I need to growl at this point. So you kind of have to trust your process and hope that your uh, your admiration and your research for the character shines through. But I love I love that mention of of the growl and that kind of way where he saw antagonism in the crowd as a real challenge to rise up to. And, you know, especially because like you were saying, you had live audiences there. And, and especially I imagine the energy was quite special because following COVID, nobody had been to gigs in so long. Yes, so even just being on TV set. Yeah, it was you know. First gig and a lot of our, I mean, the extras truly made this job. They were just incredible. And they hired all of the supporting artists that, uh, that were actual punks. They wanted actual punks. So a lot of them had never been extras before. This was their first, their first gig. And they were used to going to punk gigs. I'd never been to a punk gig before. And Janny's big thing very early on when he was talking to us about the Sex Pistols was that they never retreated. You know, you see a lot of amazing singers at the time and there's a big gap between them and the crowd, understandably. And they stood at a microphone very still and they let people kind of adore them. The Sex Pistols didn't do that. They were almost part of the audience. They were touching their audience. They were sharing bodily fluids with their audience. So I could never retreat. And the audience kind of challenged you in a way, but John was never intimidated by that. And he always gave it right back. So um, yeah, I definitely couldn't shy away from that. And because with a lot of the musical performances or, or the moment where they, they were swearing on live television, you have footage to be able to go back and look at a lot of those aspects and really kind of study the mannerisms and, and study all the specificities of that. How did you kind of take all the front facing information that you have and then carry it through to moments behind? Because like even going back to what you were talking about earlier when he's auditioning for the band, that's obviously something that there's no, you know, we don't have footage of that. We don't know what that looks like. And there's that great push and pull between like he wants it more than anything and even when he overhears the band talking about him you know and saying derogatory things it's like okay I see this challenge and I accept it in the same way that he feeds off the audience in a very different way and so how did you want to carry it through into moments like that and a lot of the the scenes behind closed doors so we always wanted to present these boys as and all of the characters actually not just these boys as um real human beings because history and the media have portrayed them ever since 1976 as these spitting, anarchic, ungodly devils, right? And a lot of it is to do with Malcolm McLaren and what he wanted people to think about, played by Thomas Brody Sangster in the show, and what he wanted people to think about this band, to shock people. But it's it's not true. You know, they, they that's exciting. That's an exciting part of their personality and the, and the whole persona of the group. And we definitely tried not to shy away from that. But it was important to show them as fully rounded personalities because that's what people are. And people are massive contradictions. You know, John has this incredible, incredibly aggressive stage persona, or he did at the time. And then he he's like doting on his mum. Do you know what I mean? He's such a interesting end of uh, end of the spectrum with his personality, which I was so excited to explore. And, it, you know, it's funny you should bring up the Grundy incident. So when they went on the Grundy show and they, they were the first people in England to swear live on television, I kept 
thinking as I, as I was going throughout the shoot, or particularly during band camp, we were rehearsing, I'd like play out a scene with Danny. And then afterwards, I'd have to go to the toilet and watch Grundy and think, was the version of John I just gave then, could it match this version that was actually on Grundy, this real life version? So I was always very aware of the real footage. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about when you play a real person, especially one as famous as John, is that there's so much source material because there's so many videos. And uh, we, we were lucky that we got to work. We, I had my singing coach, but we also had a voice coach who did our dialect and she helped me develop John's slight lisp that he used to have. And uh, how, and he's kind of, he speaks in a minor key. Most people speak in a major key. He speaks minor, which is quite unique. And then we had a, a, a movement coach. John suffered from meningitis when he was six years old. He was taken out of school for about a year and a half, I believe. And it, he had his spinal fluid drained. Like there was a lot of things went on with his body at the time, which affected the way he moved. So to explore that was amazing. And I got to do that with a movement coach. And I think what was helpful it, it, I've realised it's helpful since the shoot, but it felt like the biggest challenge at the time was that Danny always had this ambition at the start of band camp that we would get so good as a band that we could perfectly recreate move for move, sound for sound, some of the Sex Pistols concerts that are recorded and some of their music videos, and he would be able to intercut it with archive footage. So I, not only did our hair and makeup and our costumes have to be exact, we had to learn it like a dance. And we ended up doing it for three, the three that he wanted. So we were very proud of that. So So It Goes, their first TV performance, God Save the Queen, their music video, and Pretty Vacant, their performance on Top of the Pops. We learned that like a dance routine, exactly how they did it, and then had to make it look natural. And then I learned it exactly like the, the versions that they performed on the day. And I think doing that and having your mind half in the archive footage to make sure that Danny can intercut it with the editor allows you to not go off too much on a tangent of your own creation of this character and allows you to stay rooted in the real person. And in working with a movement coach as well, it's such a physical role in a lot of different ways. You know, even yeah. what you were talking about in the way that he moves specifically, but it's also, you know, he comes across as someone where there's just like this constant surge of energy in his body and there needs to be an outlet for it. And so he's a very kind of like fluid character on screen throughout the series as well. How did you find a lot of those aspects? Yeah, I mean, what, what was fascinating is, again, I talk about his journey throughout time. So he changed the way he moved so much, the way he spoke and the way he moved. There's a, we made, we had this incredible reel of all of the interviews they ever did in between kind of like 75 and 79. And one of the earliest ones was Janet Street Porter interviewing the band at Denmark Street, their rehearsal space um, for ITV News or something like that. And I remember in it, John's shoulders were up by his ears and his head hung low and he was very quiet in the way he spoke. The last time Janet Street Porter interviewed him in 1979, he had left the Sex Pistols and he was really famous and knew just how talented he was. And his shoulders were down. He stands higher. He walks with a purpose and he speaks loud and with conviction. And I was like, whoa, how do we get from there to there? And so that was what was great, having a movement coach to explore that journey. And I worked out kind of three stages of John that we could show in the, in the series. And having, you know, speaking to the real people at the time, it was easy to understand how the band changed. Grundy was a big shift in the band because after that, they were household names and they were hated. They were absolutely, you know, they were taunted, beaten up on the street every day. Um, and then in, in terms of our show, and the biggest other shift was when John writes his first song. So you have episode two and half of episode three where they're doing covers. And then they realise if we want to progress, we need to write a song. And then John has this burst of inspiration and all of a sudden he's Johnny Rotten and he's writing Anarchy in the UK and he's writing God Save the Queen. And it's the John that you recognise a little bit more that, that is so famous. 
So those were the two big shift points for me. And they were the points where his movement, you know, his physicality and his voice changed the most. And you, you've, in speaking about this role in this project as a whole, you've, you've said that it's kind of really changed your perspective and even just, you know, not saying no to things as much and, and leaning things in, into things a lot more. Um, what are the ways in that's kind of, in the way that that's kind of like shifted your perspective, particularly when you look at things professionally as an actor and the way that you're looking pro- at projects differently since playing this role? Well, I've definitely learned to love chaos. Don't shy away from chaos. Because I, I remember when I did Blackbird, I got to work with like Kate Winslet and Susan Sarandon and they've been doing this such a long time and I learned so much from them things like about you know being aware of where your camera is so you can so that you can give give a performance and I you know that was sort of brought to me when I did a play at the National Theatre as well I learned about being aware of your audience and then I did 1917 and obviously that was so technical because the camera never it supposedly never cut you know it did obviously but it's shot as though it's all in one take so I, I'd kind of done a lot of really technical jobs and then I came into this and that's the only thing I knew how to be a bit tech even though I hadn't been to drama school just I was aware of how to be technical on a set to to advantage and then I just had to not be aware of that anymore because like I said I could hardly see a camera half the time and there's just this chaos in the sex pistols that no matter how much you try and tame them in a script chaos always prevails you know and chaos always wins which is which is their genius and it's that's their art and that's what makes them so special so I've learned to just lean into that and enjoy when things go wrong I used to be scared of making these horrible mistakes if I did an improvisation but now I'm like sometimes those are the best things you just didn't expect it and after the take you're like what did I just say and then Danny would come over and be like oh that was brilliant and I, and I I was so insecure and Danny was like, no, 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 it was great. It just felt just like John. So I've learned, I've learned to embrace making mistakes and to embrace experimentation in acting and in your choices. And I'm, I, I'm inspired by what John Lydon has continued to do. He's never stopped. He and Vivian Westwood have kind of always carried on to the new mission. They've never, and they don't look back all too much, you know, they're always creating something new. And I think that is a, a great model for an acting career as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly inspired by John and what he's gone on to do. Yeah, I absolutely love love hearing all of that, that that was the experience coming off the back of it. And it's been such a genuine pleasure to listen to you talking all about the series. It's a really wonderful performance. I hope I haven't gone on too much. I just had such a great time making the show. It was so fascinating. And I, I feel so honoured as an actor to have got to play a part as interesting as this for a director like Danny Boyle. So thank you for listening to it all. Oh my gosh, of course. Thank you so much, Hanson. Thanks, Mara. I hope to do it again.